Chapter 25 of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Bradfield. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter 25. Ashes of Tinder, the Loosing of Stays. When Hurstwood got back to his office again, he was in a greater quandary than ever. Lord, Lord, he thought, what had he got into? How could things have taken such a violent turn, and so quickly? He could hardly realize how it had all come about. It seemed a monstrous, unnatural, unwarranted condition, which had suddenly descended upon him, without his let or hindrance. Meanwhile, he gave a thought now and then to Carrie. What could be the trouble in that quarter? No letter had come, no word of any kind, and yet here it was, late in the evening, and she had agreed to meet him that morning. Tomorrow they were to have met and gone off. Where? He saw that in the excitement of recent events he had not formulated a plan upon that score. He was desperately in love, and would have taken great chances to win her under ordinary circumstances. But now—now now what? Supposing she had found out something. Supposing she, too, wrote him and told him all that she knew. That she would have nothing more to do with him. It would be just like this to happen, as things were going now. Meanwhile, he had not sent the money. He strolled up and down the polished floor of the resort, his hands in his pockets, his brow wrinkled, his mouth set. He was getting some vague comfort out of a good cigar, but it was no panacea for the ill which affected him. Every once in a while he would clench his fingers and tap his foot, signs of the stirring mental process he was undergoing. His whole nature was vigorously and powerfully shaken up, and he was finding what limits the mind has to endurance. He drank more brandy and soda than he had any evening in months. He was altogether a fine example of great mental perturbation. For all his study, nothing came of the evening except this. He sent the money. It was with great opposition, after two or three hours of the most urgent mental affirmation and denial, that at last he got an envelope, placed in it the requested amount, and slowly sealed it up. Then he called Harry, the boy of all work around the place. "'You take this to this address,' he said, handing him the envelope, "'and give it to Mrs. Hurstwood.' "'Yes, sir,' said the boy. "'If she isn't there, bring it back.' "'Yes, sir.' "'You've seen my wife?' he asked, as a precautionary measure, as the boy turned to go. "'Oh, yes, sir. I know her.' "'All right now. Hurry right back.' "'Any answer?' "'I guess not.' The boy hastened away, and the manager fell to his musings. Now he had done it. There was no use speculating over that. He was beaten for tonight, and he might just as well make the best of it. But, oh, the wretchedness of being forced this way! He could see her meeting the boy at the door and smiling sardonically. She would take the envelope and know that she had triumphed. If he only had that letter back, he wouldn't send it. He breathed heavily and wiped the moisture from his face. For relief, he arose and joined in the conversation with a few friends who were drinking. He tried to get the interest of things about him, but it was not to be. All the time his thoughts would run out to his home and see the scene being therein enacted. All the time he was wondering what she would say when the boy handed her the envelope. In about an hour and three quarters the boy returned. He had evidently delivered the package, for, as he came up, he made no sign of taking anything out of his pocket. "'Well?' said Hurstwood. "'I gave it to her.' "'My wife?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Any answer?' "'She said it was high time.' Hurstwood scowled fiercely. There was no more to be done upon that score that night. He went on brooding over his situation until midnight, when he repaired again to the Palmer house. He wondered what the morning would bring forth, and slept anything but soundly upon it. 
Next day, he went again to the office and opened his mail, suspicious and hopeful of its contents. No word from Carrie, nothing from his wife, which was pleasant. The fact that he had sent the money and that she had received it worked to the ease of his mind, for, as the thought that he had done it receded, his chagrin at it grew less and his hope of peace more. He fancied, as he sat at his desk, that nothing would be done for a week or two. Meanwhile, he would have time to think. This process of thinking began by a reversion to Carrie and the arrangement by which he was to get her away from Drouet. How about that now? His pain at her failure to meet or write him rapidly increased as he devoted himself to the subject. He decided to write her care of the West Side Post Office and ask for an explanation, as well as to have her meet him. The thought that this letter would probably not reach her until Monday chafed him exceedingly. He must get some speedier method, but how? He thought upon it for a half hour, not contemplating a messenger or a cab direct to the house, owing to the exposure of it. But finding that time was slipping away to no purpose, he wrote a letter and then began to think again. The hours slipped by, and with them the possibility of the union he had contemplated. He had thought to be joyously aiding Carrie by now in the task of joining her interests to his, and here it was afternoon and nothing done. Three o'clock came, four, five, six, and no letter. The helpless manager paced the floor and grimly endured the gloom of defeat. He saw a busy Saturday ushered out, the Sabbath in, and nothing done. All day, the bar being closed, he brooded alone, shut out from home, from the excitement of his resort, from Carrie, and without the ability to alter his condition one iota. It was the worst Sunday he had spent in his life. In Monday's second mail, he encountered a very legal-looking letter, which held his interest for some time. It bore the imprint of the law offices of McGregor, James, and Hay, and with a very formal, Dear Sir, and We Beg to State, went on to inform him briefly that they had been retained by Mrs. Julia Hurstwood to adjust certain matters which related to her sustenance and property rights, and would he kindly call them and see about the matter at once. He read it through carefully several times, and then merely shook his head. It seemed as if his family troubles were just beginning. "'Well,' he said after a time, quite audibly, "'I don't know.' Then he folded it up and put it in his pocket. To add to his misery, there was no word from Carrie. He was quite certain now that she knew he was married and was angered at his perfidy. His loss seemed all the more bitter now that he needed her most. He thought he would go out and insist on seeing her if she did not send him word of some sort soon. He was really affected most miserably of all by this desertion. He had loved her earnestly enough, but now that the possibility of losing her stared him in the face, she seemed much more attractive. He really pined for a word, and looked out upon her with his mind's eye in the most wistful manner. He did not propose to lose her, whatever she might think. Come what might, he would adjust to this matter, and soon. He would go to her and tell her all his family complications. He would explain to her just where he stood and how much he needed her. Surely she couldn't go back on him now. It wasn't possible. He would plead until her anger would melt, until she would forgive him. Suddenly, he thought, supposing she isn't out there, suppose she has gone. He was forced to take his feet. It was too much to think of and sit still. Nevertheless, his rousing availed him nothing. On Tuesday, it was the same way. He did manage to bring himself into the mood to go out to carry, but when he got in Ogden Place, he thought he saw a man watching him and went away. He did not go within a block of the house. One of the galling incidents of this visit was that he came back on a Randolph Street car and, without noticing, arrived almost opposite the building of the concern with which his son was connected. This sent a pang through his heart. He had called on his boy there several times. 
Now the lad had not sent him a word. His absence did not seem to be noticed by either of his children. Well, well, fortune pays a man queer tricks. He got back to his office and joined in a conversation with friends. It was as if idle chatter deadened the sense of misery. That night he dined at Rector's and returned at once to his office. In the bustle and show of the latter was his only relief. He troubled over many little details and talked perfunctorily to everybody. He stayed at his desk long after all others had gone, and only quitted it when the night watchman on his round pulled at the front door to see if it was safely locked. On Wednesday he received another polite note from McGregor, James, and Hay. It read, Dear Sir, we beg to inform you that we are instructed to wait until tomorrow, Thursday, at one o'clock, before filing suit against you, on behalf of Mrs. Julia Hurstwood, for divorce and alimony. If we do not hear from you before that time, we shall consider that you do not wish to compromise the matter in any way, and act accordingly. Very truly yours, etc. Compromise, exclaimed Hurstwood bitterly. Compromise? Again he shook his head. So here it was, spread out clear before him, and now he knew what to expect. If he didn't go and see them, they would sue him promptly. If he did, he would be offered terms that would make his blood boil. He folded the letter and put it with the other one. Then he put on his hat and went for a turn around the block. End of chapter 25. Recording by Carrie Bradfield, St. Louis, Missouri.